We're going to be continuing on today with our critical questions class that we started last week. Last week we, be we began this class. If you missed it, you can see the recording online and on our Facebook live feed thing that we're doing. Uh, this is the first class of our commitment course, which is the four classes that we have to become a member of the church and to grow with us. Our goal is that we would be growing together in all that God has called us to and that we would build together. We're building the church. What that means is we're seeing God's sanctification on each person. We're all operating in all the gifts that God has given us, and we are building together to demonstrate to the, Lord, to the world what the Lord's people look like and actually do what the Bible says. Pretty good, huh? Now, that's a tall thing, isn't it? Lord, help us. But you know what? We're doing it. We're doing it. Praise the Lord. And we're doing it today because we're actually together assembling to hear the word of God because we trust him. Isn't it interesting how things like coronavirus start to shake your foundation to show what you really believe? Right? So I have friends. I, I used to be in the military, and some of my friends were really into that zombie prep thing. And so one of my buddies sent me a picture the other day, and it was his gun safe. And his gun safe had a couple pistols in it and stuff. I'm sorry if that kind of stuff makes you nervous. Uh, but he had that and 40 rolls of toilet paper in his safe. And he was like, I've been waiting for this my whole life. I was like, man, okay. <laughs> but what you believe and how you believe and how you live and what you think is going to happen, if you really believe that there is going to be a zombie apocalypse and this is the end, it starts to come out real quick, doesn't it? And so your foundation of what you believe matters a lot. Last week we started talking about that because we were talking about the Word of God as our foundation, our standard for living. And we talked about that it's authoritative, that it's relevant for any age, any time, any technology. It doesn't matter. It's relevant always because it's God's own Word. And it's transformative. It actually changes us. It's powerful. Then David had a great explanation, which was very short, but a lot of information about how we actually can trust the Word of God in a reasonable way. That this is not just a document that we've looked up and thought, oh, this would be neat. But there are rational proofs that we can look at the Word of God and say, there has to be a divine fingerprint that made this book come together the way it did. It's impossible not to. And so we can rationally say, the Word of God is the foundation for our life. This week, we're going to be talking about knowing God. The Bible has two major big questions to it. Well, really three major themes. The first one is, who is God? Who is the creator? What has he done? What's he like? How do we approach him? Who is he? What does that mean for our lives? The second thing is, who are we? Are we important? Are we not important? Do we need to be saved? Do we not need to be saved? What's the deal? And the third thing that we're looking at in the Bible is, what does that salvation look like? What does God's rule look like on the earth? If he's really God, and spoiler alert, he is, what does that mean for us? And so those three themes of the Bible are major. They're critical questions for life that every person, not just believers, but every person needs to answer in their life because it affects everything that you do and believe and how you actually live. So this week, we're going to do a very short survey, if you will, on who is God and what is he like and how do we know him. We're going to do that by looking at the Bible together. Roy, can you go to the next slide for me, please? This is a depiction from the classic movie of Moses and the Ten Commandments of the parting of the Red Sea. And we're going to read about that story together in Exodus chapter 14. And we're going to look at that and do a little Bible study 
all that means is we're going to read the Word of God together and see what it says. So there's no quiz at the end. Whenever you hear study, you think quiz. Or if you've ever met my dad, you think quiz. We're not going to have a quiz at the end, but instead we're going to start to answer those questions of who is God and how do we see him in this from just one chapter of the Bible, what do we start to see about him? So we're going to read the whole chapter, so bear with me because it's going to be okay. We're going to get through it. It's a little bit of reading, but it's not, it's not going to take too long. And then we're going to look at the different parts to see things about who God is. So while we read, I want you to be thinking, what does this passage tell us about God? So turn in your Bible, please, to Genesis chapter 14. If you need a Bible, there's a stack of them on the back table. There's also note pages in the back. If, Exodus, sorry, Exodus 14. Did I say Genesis? Sorry. My son Benjamin was sitting in the front, and he had, he had the first page of Genesis. He's like, Daddy, I found Genesis. <laughs> he's, he's little. Praise the Lord. Exodus chapter 14. If you need a Bible on the back, if you don't have a note page, uh, they are also on the back table. If you have your packet from last week, it also includes these notes. If you have your packet at home and you just need this page still, it's also on the back table. There's pens back there too if you want to take any notes. Here's what's happening in the story. God has spoken to his people. He has come to individuals and he's told them, I'm going to make of you a great nation, this guy named Abraham. And of your descendants, I'm going to make this nation and I'm going to use them to show what my people look like on the earth to be a beacon of hope for the world, if you will. And they're going to show people what it means to know God and to live his way. It's going to be great. And so God is faithful to his promises. In fact, he saves the known world from a famine through his, this, this lineage of people that he creates. And these people are the, the Hebrews, the Israelites. Uh, when they go through this terrible time where there's a famine in the earth, the family that becomes this nation moves to Egypt, the country of Egypt, which is the biggest, most powerful empire in the world, in the known world at this time. And so Egypt is sort of saved, really, by God's providential hand through the Hebrews. And then they realize, here's a great labor source. And over time, they start to subjugate the, the Israelites because there are foreign people in their land. And they uh, fall into slavery, and they use them now as slaves for 400 years. They're slaves. So the Israelites are working for Egypt. The conditions are not great. And by the time we get to this point in Exodus chapter 14, there's a genocide that's happening against the Israelite people. And the Israelites are crying out to God because Pharaoh, who's the king of Egypt, has made an edict, a decree, that all baby Hebrew boys must be murdered to control their population. So imagine, you're in slavery, God forbid. You're crying out to God. All of your sons are being slaughtered. It's, it's not a good story, right? Which helps us understand some of the violence, because there's violence that happens here, of God who is taking vengeance on a nation who is oppressing his people, and punishing them for their sin because they are murdering all the baby boys. This is a horrible time that's happening in the Bible. So the Israelites are crying out to God, Lord, save us. So God raises up this guy named Moses, who's going to be the leader of the people. And he comes and he tells Pharaoh, let God's people go, that they may go worship him. Pharaoh says no. God sends a bunch of plagues to show Pharaoh that he, in fact, the Lord, is God. He's in charge, and Pharaoh, who's the king, needs to heed what God says. Finally, after all the plagues, Pharaoh says, just go. And all the people of Egypt want the Israelites to go because it's really bad for them. So they leave, 
And then we're going to pick up this story in Exodus chapter 14 just after the Israelites have left. Everybody got the context more or less? Are there any questions about that before we jump in? Okay, that's okay if there are questions. Let's read Exodus chapter 14 together. Here we go. Then the Lord said to Moses, who's the leader of the Israelites, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi-Harath between Migdol and the sea, in front of Belzephon. And you shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh, who's the king of Egypt, will say to the people of, Israel, of the people of Israel, They are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and over his host. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, what is this thing that we have done? We have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him. And he took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of, the, of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them and camped at the sea by Piharoth in front of Belzephon. Then Pharaoh drew near. The people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we had said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. What was happening to them though before? They were dying. That's why they cried out. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm. And see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you only have to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry out to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of the Lord who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove back the sea by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right and a wall to them on their left. And the Egyptians pursued them and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots and his horsemen. And in the morning watched the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud, looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back on the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. 
So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea, and the waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen. All of the host of Pharaoh who had followed him into the sea, not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right and a wall to them on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord had used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Praise God for his word. This is a scary, violent story. Keep into your mind two things. The first one is the people of Israel are slaves. They're not trained warriors. They don't have a militia. They don't have an army. They weren't allowed to use weapons. They weren't allowed to train themselves in any of those kind of things because they were in slavery. So now they're leaving, and a whole generation of boys has been killed, more or less. And so all your fighters and young men, it's not like that exactly. And so the people leaving are women, children, families, broken families. They're, they're not in a place to fight a battle. First of all, second thing that's happening here is as the, the Israelites have left Egypt and gone on, Pharaoh's army is the greatest, most feared army in the world. And did you notice how the text talks about chariots a lot? Chariots are like the tanks of the day. So here comes not just an army to come get them, but here comes Pharaoh with the biggest tanks he has, who's coming after and pursuing the people of Israel. So when they look behind him, them, Absolute panic is taking over because this is not something that they can defend against. And this is not like this little group of like, what, 50 people? This is 2 million Israelites walking together in the wilderness, walking together in the wilderness, who have come now to the sea on the Lord's direction and who are looking at certain death from the army who has conquered the known world. And you can feel the panic that would start to come up, can't you, in those odds? And so what does God do? Separates the sea big enough that two million people in one night can walk across. That's, this, is a, this is a huge miracle. It's not like this. This is really cool looking. It makes great art. But it's a lot bigger than this because there's so many people going at one time. Uh, if you've ever been or seen a marathon, been to or seen a marathon on television, it's a lot of people going. This is two million runners who are walking, who may or may not be healthy. This is not, you know, there's no big Ford Transits that start taking people up, you know, across. So this is a huge miracle. It's an incredible thing that's happening. Not only that, but they're walking across on dry land because God has actually dried the land under the sea. And the archeological evidence for this is overwhelming and incredible. And so here we have this story of God's deliverance on his people. And we have to understand, too, in the violence of the story, why is God doing what he did? And we're going to talk about that a little bit because it's not just God um, hating on people. That's not what's happening. So from having read the story, for the sake of time, we're just going to jump in. I want to know your thoughts, but we need to go quicker. Next slide, please. Here's the first thing that we see from this story. God is the creator. He is the creator. And we know that because God has all power over everything that's happening on earth. The sea is responding to his word. He can dry the land in an instant. 
He can change the course and direction of the sea at will. He throws the Egyptians into panic in the darkness. So even during uh, this time, he could put darkness over places despite the sun shining or not. He can do whatever he wants. How is that possible? He's the, the creator. In fact, the Bible tells us whenever you see in the Bible, L-O-R-D, all capitals, like the, in the third line down here, the reason for that is that was the word, the, the name for God that was given to the people of God for the Lord in creation. The Lord God who created the earth. This was to be different than any other false gods that people were worshiping. This was the name of God. In fact, the Lord saying, this is my name. I want you to understand I'm the one who's created the earth. In other words, this is the name by which God would sign checks. If you sign a check, you're legally bound to pay that money, correct? This is the money signing name of God. So whenever you see Lord, it's not just, oh, Lord, that's nice. It's God saying, I am the great one who has created the earth. I am the one who's, who is true to my word. I am the one who you can know because I made you. This is who I am. So anytime you see that, that's talking about the creator God. And what's really fascinating here is God shows this in the power that he has over the Egyptians. So the people of Israel walk through on dry land. What happened to the Egyptians when they pursue? All of a sudden, their wheels are heavy and there's mud. This is before water's crashing in, right? And what do the Egyptians say? Do you remember? The Lord is fighting for them. And they're afraid. Why are they afraid? Because they recognize that this one, this God, is the Lord of all creation. He's the one who made us all, and we are beholden to him. That's a scary realization. Um, what's fascinating here, too, is the Egyptians have already been through all the plagues in Egypt, and God, for time after time after time, has already proven this to them. And they know it. That's why the Egyptians are so quick to say to Pharaoh, let's stop. The Lord's fighting for them, because they already know that he has this kind of power. But the first thing we see from this story is that the Lord is God over creation. Next slide, please, Roy. The second thing that we see here is that God is judge. We don't like that word much in our culture. The judge word, it's not a good word, right? But we see here that God is judge. What do I mean by that? What do you think, what do you think that means? For anybody who's bold to venture an answer. Yeah. His decision is final? His decision is final, yeah, true. Uh, yeah. He does. Ellie? We are not the judge. That's true. God gets to be the judge. Yeah? Yeah, he decides right from wrong. What, what would have made this story different, do you think? What could have made this story different? If what? Yeah, that's true. If Moses was the one who's the judge, it changes everything. Because now a person gets to decide, right? And have some kind of like wizardly power to change things. But that's not what the Bible says. Men don't get to be the judge. Also, the king of Egypt, his name is Pharaoh, had declared himself to be the god of the Egyptians. The son of their son god, Ra. He was said, I'm divinely made. I am, your, I am the divine representative on earth. I'm your god. So the people of Egypt actually worship Pharaoh, and whatever he says goes. But here we have a showdown. 
between Pharaoh, who's made a judgment. What have we done? We let the, the Israelites go. How could we do that? And God, who is the judge. And so the Bible tells us in many times that the Lord is even hardening Pharaoh's heart. That Pharaoh is, he's not thinking rationally, fully. And it's interesting as we see this story because we see Pharaoh who believes and the people believe that he's God. The people follow them. The Egyptians follow their false god Pharaoh to their total destruction because they will not recognize that God is creator and he is judge and that the one who created the world is really to be worshipped. This story would be different if all the Egyptians said, no, Pharaoh, we know you're not God anymore. We're not going to follow you. But they don't. And so it makes for a very different story. So what do we see? how do we see this? We see this because the Lord actually has real edicts, real judgments that he makes over the Egyptians. And it's scary. And it's bad. And the Egyptians are crushed by the water. They're drowned in the sea. This is not a happy, nice story. Now, we make it happy and nice sometimes in our little Sunday school books where the Lord delivers the people. But imagine the terror of the Israelites seeing all the tanks coming at them. And then God delivering them from that destruction because the Lord has fought for them. There are real consequences. It's not just nice and everybody's happy. Because in our culture, sometimes we don't want any judges. You know, that was right for the Egyptians to do that because they felt, you know, like they were losing out on this thing. And they wanted to make sure that the Israelites were working for them again. So that was their truth. And they did their truth and that was fine for them. That's not, it, that doesn't work. There's a real standard because God really is judge, and he's judging the Egyptians on the basis of what they have actually done. So what have they done? They enslaved his people 400 years. They mistreated them. They're having a genocide against them. They're, they are harming the people every day. This is not a nice story where it's just people doing whatever they want, and then God's intervening because he's a bad guy. In fact, God is revealed as judge of the world because his power and his status as creator makes him the ultimate authority. Next slide, please. We also see God as provider. How is God the provider? How is God the provider? Yeah, the Israelites actually escape. Do they do that in their own power? No, they walk through the dry land, but they don't actually contribute much other than Moses raises his staff. And Moses has already said he can't really do anything. So God is, is the one who's doing all these things, and he is providing the way out for the Egyptians. Did you want to say something? I was just going to say, God provided raised up Moses. Yeah, he provided Moses himself. That's true. He provides for the people in every way because the Lord is the one who is fighting for them. And Moses says at the end of verse 14 here, you can read, and you only have to be silent. You only have to be silent. You know, sometimes we believe that if we just pray the right prayer or say the right thing or if I bow the right way or if I, you know, pray for enough time or maybe if I give enough money or maybe if I wash myself the right way or if I hurt myself because I want to feel some pain so that God knows I'm really serious. We try all these means to get God to do what we want him to, but God's not a genie. And at the end of the day, God is demonstrated as provider because he's providing the way for the, the, the deliverance of the Israelites. But he's doing it, and all they have to do is be silent. And that's incredible. 
It means that when we come to this great God who is judge, he is to be feared because he's the judge. He is also our provider. And look at the tenderness with which he is providing for and caring for his people, making sure that they're safe, fighting on their behalf, and all they have to do is be silent. And what did they say? It's a good thing that they only need to be silent because what did they say? You're bringing us out here to die? Why, why would you do this to us? Weren't there enough graves in Egypt? This is ridiculous. Oh, the Lord doesn't care about us. And they've just been through this whole deliverance from Egypt. And the first thing they say to God after leaving is that he is not powerful enough or strong enough or good enough to protect them from the army coming. And the Lord says, you only have to be silent. What does that tell us about God as provider? It doesn't mean we have to know the plan. In fact, this is God's plan, wasn't it? He told Moses, you're going to wander. Pharaoh will think that you're just trapped in by the wilderness, and they're going to come and try to hurt you. And I will get glory over Pharaoh. Understand, God as provider, he loves his people. He cares for us. He provides for us everything that we need for life and godliness, the Bible says. And also, his first prerogative is his own glory. It's his first prerogative. Does God want to bless you? Sure. He blesses people every day. But his glory is more important than our comfort. And we see that by the Israelites who are wandering in the wilderness. They're coming to this place, and they're like, what's the plan here? And they only need to be silent. Now, does that mean we can't ask God any questions? Of course we can ask God questions. But the heart attitude is what's important. What's the attitude of the Israelites? Is it full of faith and like, hey, Lord, I'm asking you a question? Or is it that student in class who's like, hmm, I don't agree. We've all been in schools like that, right? You have somebody in a class who's the, or a kid trying to ask a question where he's really trying to teach the class? That's these guys. Let me just school you, Lord, on how you should deliver us. You'd be a better provider if you did all these things, which is fascinating. Here's another interesting part of this story that's not in here, is the Egyptians, because God has demonstrated such power over all of their false gods. What I mean by that is, all of the plagues, and this is a whole other thing, but all of the plagues that happen in Egypt are directly correlated to the actual false gods of the Egyptians. For instance, one of the plagues is frogs. There's just an abundance of frogs everywhere. So where do the Egyptians go to get relief from the frogs? They go to the frog idol. And they come to the frog idol and they do all their offerings. Please remove the frogs from us. And at the end of the day, here's Moses standing there going, oh yeah, that, that's, he's, they can't hear you. The Lord who created the earth brought these frogs to demonstrate to you that your frog idol doesn't mean anything. And now we come to the Red Sea, and he says, here's Pharaoh's last chance. He thinks he's God. You all are believing he's God. Are you going to follow him into the sea? And the Egyptians are like, yes, until the mud comes. They're like, whoa, no, and it's too late. But here's the fascinating thing about this is these plagues that have come as God's demonstrated his power the Egyptians are so eager for the Israelites to leave and stop the plagues that they just give them jewels and money and gold. They go into their savings accounts and get any kind of gold, anything they have, and just, here, take it. Just go. And just make your God stop all these things. And so here's the Israelites walking to the Red Sea, just blinging. So they're crying out to God, Lord, we want you to deliver us this way full of money. Money is not the answer. It's God's power 
you only have to be silent. That's a hard lesson for all of us, isn't it? Because those bank accounts call to you at 2 in the morning, don't they? Am I good? Are things secure? I don't know. Lord, you're not providing for me enough. It's the same heart attitude. Can we trust him? And we start to see these lessons by being God's. Now, those are real concerns, aren't they? Coronavirus, real concerns. That's real stuff. It's really scary stuff. But we see from the story, God's the provider. He even has power over nature. He even has power over nature. Okay, next slide. God is the helper. He's the savior. Notice, God is the one who does all the fighting for Egypt. Here's what Exodus 14, 24 through 25 says. In the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and the cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a, plant, into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before the Lord, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Here's what's interesting. The best military technological advancement that the Egyptians had that gave them secure victories over all of their adversaries, the chariot, is the first thing to go. And it goes by, ready, mud. The Lord has taken their best of their technology, the best of their preparedness, the best of their military might, and in one muddy little tiny thing, all of their power goes away. And all the people suddenly realize, because of mud, God is fighting for them. That's incredible. It's incredible because the Lord is saving. He's fighting himself, fighting against the Egyptian forces on behalf of the Israelites. This is hugely and integrally important because the Bible tells us that the Lord used the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God, in his mercy, we're going to find next week as we talk about ourselves and about God's plan for salvation, he sent his own son, Jesus. God himself, the second person of the Trinity forever, became a man, a baby in a manger, who would grow up and who would suffer all the penalty for our disobedience, for our idolatry, for our believing that we could do it better than God, for our questioning, for our bad attitudes, all those things, Christ pays the punishment for us. And it's foolishness to think about that the holy, heavenly judge of the world would himself take the punishment so that we could be made right with him. But the good news of the gospel is that the same God who fought against the Egyptians to deliver the Israelites is the same God who loves us, who called us, who saves us through his son, through his perfect work, his death and his resurrection. And so God is our answer. He's the helper. He's the savior. That doesn't just mean he helps and saves some people and then we can worry about things all the time. It means we trust him more than we trust our own ingenuity, our own technological advancement, our own thoughts, and our own plans. We trust him. Next slide, please. We also see that God is the ruler. He's the sovereign. We sang about that this morning. The Lord said here in Exodus 14 in the very beginning that he had a plan that he will get glory over Pharaoh and his host and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. Why did he choose to do it this way? I don't know. The Bible doesn't say, and God chose for these six reasons why he would do this. The Bible doesn't tell us that. 
Instead, the Bible is more like a love story of love letters that God has written over time, that he's expanding out how much he loves his people and what he's doing and how, he's, how he is interacting with them and what he's done so that we can rest on who he is. And so the Bible doesn't give us a scientific textbook answer for the reasons why God did this. Instead, we get to see his very character come out. And one most important thing that we see right away is not only is he creator, not only is he judge, not only does he provide for us, not only is he the savior, but he is the ruler. There is no Pharaoh that compares to him. There's no king that compares to him. There's no thinking that compares to him. There's no philosophy that compares to him. He is the sovereign. That means he gets to do as he pleases. Now, what's really cool about that is he's demonstrating to us what he's like. If you had somebody who had absolute power over you that you don't know at all, how would you feel? Terrified. Terrified. And there are tons of myths, Scottish and otherwise, <laughs> that are talk about what would happen if there's somebody who has power over you and you don't get a say. There's one, do you remember the story of Rumpelstiltskin? Remember that story, that fairy tale? How, how do you, what is that guy? He's kind of all powerful, right? He was, yeah, he's a trickster. He's this magic guy. This is from folklore from somewhere. I'm gonna say Finland, I don't know. Finland sounds good. <laughs> Anyways, old story. And this guy, he's got magic powers and can do what he wants. How do you, how do you stop him? You say his name. If you know his name, then he can't get you anymore. Now that is rooted in old idolatry from forever, where people thought if you know the name of the deity, the demon, whatever. So think about all those, those scary movies you watch. Tell me your name, demon. It's the same thinking. If you know their name, you can have, you can have power over them. Here's God and the Lord, the name by which he created, the name by which he introduced himself, the name by which he signs the check, the name by which you can know, here's who I am and this is what I'm doing. Says to the people, here's my plan. I'm going to make you wander around. Pharaoh's going to think that you're in trouble. He's going to pursue you. I will get glory over him. And at the very end again, they shall know I am the Lord. Here's the funny part. You ready? The Lord's name is a play on the word I am. When he reveals himself, he says, I am that I am. I am being. I am all of it. I am. You get all of your life from me. I created you. I am the judge. I am the jury. I am the executioner. I am the sovereign. I am the provider. I am the helper. I am the savior. I am. And now the Egyptians in this terrible time know it. But so do the Israelites. Because how did we end the chapter? They believed in the Lord and in the servant Moses. How incredible is that? God is not just some deity out there who's got power over you, who wants to mess with your life. He is the one who's giving you breath. He's the one who created you. He's the one who's sustaining you. And he is the one who is to be known. He's given us his word that we would actually know him and be in relationship with him. Not just somebody out there who's going to be flittering around messing with us. What's really, really incredible about the word of God is you can actually know him. How great. How do we know him? We know him through his son, Jesus, who died for us, who rose again. And it means everything to us because now we're not just afraid of the judge. We're not just afraid of the creator, but we know him. He's our savior. He's our sovereign. And we can stand firm 
because Jesus Christ is our king and he is the one saving us. That's what the Bible is all about. So who is God? He's all those things. You know, we, talked, we didn't talk about a lot of attributes. Why are we doing this? We're doing this because if you get one thing from all this critical questions class, if you get one thing from New Covenant Church, know God. We want you to know God. You will not grow spiritually. You will not grow in your life unless you actually know your creator. If you are not at peace with your creator, you are forever going to be in conflict with him. And it does not end well. It can't because he is the sovereign. We want you to know God. We want you to know the salvation of Jesus, not just so you're blessed, but so that you can stand firm on the word of God and say, I know, I know the great I am. That's what we're about. So having said that, next slide, please. Think and pray, seek the Lord, he will be found. We live in, we live in scary times. Do you have a foundation on him that you know your creator, you know your savior, you know your sovereign? Or are you trusting that you have enough ammo for the zombie apocalypse or enough toilet paper? It doesn't work. We want you to know God. So come back next week. The Lord will be found. And here's the great news. As you seek him, he will be found by you. So you pray, you read your Bible, you look at this story. If you have questions, email me. At the very front of our little packet, you've got my email, David's, who's the associate pastor, and Jerry, who's an elder. We'd love to hear from you. We'd love to get coffee with you. And we want to continue to grow together as we look next at who are we and what's God's plan for salvation. Okay, amen. Let me pray for you, and then I have a quick announcement. Father, thank you for this congregation. Lord, thank you that you are with us. Thank you, Lord, that you are the rock of our salvation. Lord, we are living in a time where there is just total fear over this virus. And Father, we, we submit to you, Lord, we're nervous sometimes. Lord, we're afraid. But Lord, you, oh God, you are our salvation. Just like you delivered the Israelites, Lord, we thank you that you are the creator, and so we submit to you, that you would be our protector, you would be our savior, and we only need to be silent. Lord, help us, God, to be wise in these times. Lord, to be smart about how we do things. But Lord, we don't trust in chariots. We don't trust in great technology. We don't trust in all the sources that the world would tell us. Instead, Lord, we look to you. So help us, Father, to walk wisely, but to be a people of peace, because we know our Creator and we know our Savior. In Jesus' name, amen.